And now look on with me or listen on as I read Leviticus chapter 7. Laws of the offerings, but this is the laws of the priesthood. And if you remember, uh, just for for the sake of the the context and the argument of Leviticus, you have in chapters 1 through 6, 8, the laws of the offerings for the individual, the common Israelite, but beginning in 6, 8, It's the laws of the priesthood, which take us to the end of chapter 10, and then after that you have a new focus. So our focus now is on the priesthood, and here, uh, chapter 7 now, with that in mind, God's word. Likewise, this is the law of the trespass offering. It is most holy. In the place where they kill the burnt offering, they shall kill the trespass offering. And its blood he shall sprinkle all around the altar, and he shall offer from it. All its fat, the fat tail and the fat that covers the entrails, the two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the flanks. And the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys he shall remove. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a trespass offering. Every male among the priests may eat it. It shall be eaten in a holy place. It is most holy. The trespass offering is like the sin offering. There is one law for them both. The priest who makes atonement with it shall have it. And the priest who offers anyone's burnt offering, that priest shall have for himself the skin, of the burnt offering which he has offered. Also, every grain offering that is baked in the oven and all that is prepared in the covered pan or in a pan shall be the priest who offers it. Every grain offering, whether mixed or uh, with oil or dry, shall uh, belong to all the sons of Aaron to one as much as the other. This is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which he shall offer to the Lord. If he offers it for thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Unleavened cakes mixed with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil, or cakes of blended flour mixed with oil. Besides the cakes as his offering, he shall offer leavened bread with the sacrifice of thanksgiving of his peace offering. And from it he shall offer one cake from each offering as a heave offering to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who sprinkles the blood of the peace offering. The flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering for thanksgiving shall be eaten the same day as it is offered. He shall not leave any of it until morning. But it is a sacrifice of his. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow or a voluntary offering, it shall be eaten the same day that he offers his sacrifice. But on the next day, the remainder of it also may be eaten. The remainder of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day must be burned with fire. And if any of the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offering is eaten at all on the third day, it shall not be accepted, nor shall it be imputed to him. It shall be an abomination to him who offers it, and the person who eats of it shall bear guilt. The flesh that touches anything unclean shall not be eaten. It shall be burned with fire. And as for the clean flesh, all who are clean may eat of it. But the person who eats the flesh of the sacrifice, the peace offering that belongs to the Lord while he is unclean, that person shall be cut off from his people. Moreover, the person who touches any unclean thing, such as human uncleanness, an unclean animal or any abominable unclean thing, and who eats the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offering that belongs to the Lord, that person shall be cut off from his people. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to the children of Israel, saying, you shall not eat any of any fat of ox or sheep or goat and the fat of an animal that dies naturally. And the fat of what is torn by wild beasts may be used in any other way, but you shall by no means eat it for whoever eats the fat of the animal 
of which men offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. The person who eats it shall be cut off from his people. Moreover, you shall not eat any blood in any of your dwellings, whether of bird or beast. Whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, He who offers the sacrifice of his peace offering to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offering. His own hand shall bring the offerings made by fire to the Lord, the fat with the breast he shall bring, that the breast may be waved as a wave offering before the Lord, and the priest shall burn the fat on the altar. But the breast shall be Aaron's and his son's. Also the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a heave offering from the sacrifice of your peace offerings. He among the sons of Israel who offers the blood of the peace offering and the fat shall have the right thigh for his part. For the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering I have taken from the children of Israel from the sacrifices of their peace offerings. And I've given them to Aaron the priest and to his sons from the children of Israel by a statute forever. This is the consecrated portion for Aaron and his sons from the offerings made by fire to the Lord on the day when Moses presented them to minister to the Lord as priests. The Lord commanded this to be given to them by the children of Israel on the day he anointed them by statute forever throughout their generations. This is the law of the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, the consecrations and the sacrifices of the peace offering, which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai on the day when he commanded the children of Israel to offer their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you indeed for your word. And we ask you that as we, well, if we're honest, we're a little bit lost in all the details of the laws of the various offerings concerning the priesthood. But we ask you, O oh God, that, well, as I find the commentaries a help to me, that the people might find the preaching a help to them in, in, in shedding light upon the word, so that now suddenly we seem to grasp it and we see it as something which has something as something which has great relevance to our lives and to our faith. And so we ask these things in Jesus name. Amen. Well, I decided I decided, as you know, to d- divide the text in two. It's a massive text, but it really does belong together. Chapter six, verse eight to the end of chapter seven. And we looked last time at the priesthood in general, their service in the tabernacle and its offerings. But as we look at them now in a more specific way, my interest, uh, and I hope this is a relief to you, I think this is a relief to me in preaching it, my, re- my interest is not so much in the details as such. For all of uh, the rituals and their details, this is the way that I want to present them, are lively figures of spiritual truths, which were evident to the pious Jews under the Old Covenant, and they remain so for us today. Again, lively figures of spiritual truths, all of which represented truths which God would deeply impress upon the minds and the hearts of the Jews in those days through the rituals, As they were performed in such a meticulous fashion by the priests of old. Many of which provided fitting pictures of the Christ to come. 
feeding the faith of the Old Testament saint, and so likewise the New Testament saint, as he reads and finds these pictures, these shadows of Christ under the Old Covenant. And what I want to focus on, therefore, again, not the details as such, but rather dividing the text under six main headings, namely the cardinal truths set forth in the text, closely following Andrew Bonar in his commentary in the observations he makes and the spiritual truths that he draws out of the text. Uh, And so I'll confess that if you were to open Bonar, you would find these six points there, though he makes many more points. I think you'll agree these, these are obvious in the text. The first cardinal truth is this. This is an obvious emphasis. It's, it's the kind of thing that arrests you when you read it. It's interesting to notice that as each of these five offerings are recounted, uh, the different aspects are emphasized. And while the aspect of the fire and the full consumption of the sacrifice in chapter 1 with regard to the burnt offering was emphasized, the emphasis now becomes the fire that ever burns. That's the first cardinal truth. It's stated over and over again. Verses 8 uh, through 13. If you were to go back and read those, it would almost overwhelm you. It shall be kept burning, God says. The fire shall always be burning on the altar. It shall never go out. The priest shall see to it that it's always kept burning by supplying wood on the altar. In addition to the sacrifices, morning and night, there must be great care to see that the fire never goes out. Here was a fire... As we'll later see in chapter 9, when the priestly service begins and Israel's uh, worship is commenced, a fire that the Lord himself kindled on the altar of burnt offering, a fire which the Lord himself began, but which the priests themselves must keep up. And it is said, according to Matthew Henry, that the fire was kept up until the people were carried away into captivity in Babylon. Now, it was the essence, we are looking at the laws of the burnt offering, and it was the essence of the burnt offering that it burned continually. Perhaps that was not so clear in chapter 1, but here in uh, where the laws of the burnt offering are given, which the priests were especially to observe, this becomes the central feature of the burnt offering. The law of the burnt offering thus becomes, it shall ever burn. And what is the significance of this? What I'm calling one of the cardinal truths of Israel's worship in the tabernacle, this ever-burning fire. Well, the significance was threefold. First of all, and most obviously, it represented the unquenchable fire of God's justice and his wrath. The fire of his wrath, which ever burned against sin and the sinner. A sight of this thus reminded the wayward sinner under the old covenant of the fires in hell which are never quenched but which ever burn and burn for all eternity. Listen, uh, for instance, it's amazing and I think we sometimes forget how, how constantly this is emphasized in the New Testament. Whereas in the Old Testament, it seems it's merely prefigured in the burnt offering. But what it prefigured becomes explicit in the new. Revelation chapter 14, verses 10 and 11. He himself shall also drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out 
full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the land. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. You see, it's the same the same cardinal truth under two representations, the altar of burnt offering, the fires of hell. But it's the same truth. And Jesus speaks in a similar vein and no one ever preached hell and the eternity of the fires of hell more than Jesus. He speaks in a similar vein when he describes Hell is a place of endless torment, endless fire. Matthew chapter 13, verses uh, 49 and 50. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And going back to the altar of burnt offering, we could say in light of this cardinal truth, What a fitting reminder this was to Israel day and night that there is a fire which God keeps up forever by his own wrath and which man can never put out. Andrew Bonar, there is no putting out this fire. This fire is not quenched is Christ's own expression, perhaps in reference to this type. Mark chapter nine, verse forty four. There will be no putting out of these flames in eternity, no waters to quench them, no interference of God's mercy. To end them. Well, that's Andrew Bonar. But one of the things that I've been struck by recently in my own reading was how common it was among our Puritan forefathers and especially their sons and our fathers in the first great awakening to preach the realities of hell. It was a common theme in their preaching if only to awaken the drowsy sinner out of his stupor, lest he end up there. They would say things like this. Can you bear to live half an hour in fire? And if not, how can you bear to live in hell to all eternity? Or Brainerd, uh, Brainerd can, uh, contemplating the woes of the lost, says in his remains, who can dwell with everlasting burnings? This is not a man who was afraid of going to hell himself. And yet he was a man who was preoccupied with the subject because he was preaching to the lost and he was warning the wayward. This was uh, a concern then which preoccupied these men and it was evident in their preaching. But it was evident as well. Uh, Or or I should say uh, another thing that was evident was the effect that it had on their hearers. It was this, among other things, that led to awakening in the churches, among the Indians and and elsewhere. Brainerd ministered to the Indians. Uh, But all throughout the land in the first great awakening. It was common for men to sit under such preaching and be affected, not only with a desire to be with Christ in heaven, but even before that and alongside it, With lively apprehensions of the realities of hell. And the certainty that this fate awaited the sinner. The wayward sinner. The unrepentant sinner. 
And so, as they sat under the preaching of men like Brainerd who asked themselves seriously, can I be sure that I am out of the way that leads to hell? Am I out of the grasp of these flames which can never be put out? Well, such preaching has a tendency to alarm the unconverted and as well to awaken the nominal sleepy Christian from his false security. But I ask you, as I asked you last time, Are you willing to sit under such preaching? Now, I asked you that with regard to just the instruction of the word. I said we lived in days of biblical ignorance. Well, will you sit under preaching which is uh, instructing you in the word? Not just preaching which is making you feel good, but preaching which is biblical. Well, if it is to be biblical, it it will be full of the doctrine of hell. Not always, but often. I can't remember where I recently read this. I've been reading too many books at once. But I I also read uh, at one point that Arthur Pink said that we Reformed Christians don't speak nearly enough about the doctrine of hell as we ought to. It should be something that we speak of far more often. Something that, well, a danger that we're aware of. And there ought to be a willingness among Christians to warn others against. We should, along with David and Paul and Jesus, weep that others are going there and seek to save them from it. Is that not the task of preaching? And is that not the task of evangelism? And what is it that will ever awaken in ourselves a desire to evangelize if not these lively apprehensions Of hell and the fire that ever burns. We may not, it is true, have uh, an altar where that fire is always present. As though to remind us of the fires of hell. But let there be steady reminders in the preaching. And in our Christian conversation. And indeed in our thoughts and prayers. That there is indeed a fire that ever burns. And at the same time that God has made a provision that we might escape. So I'm saying that we must, like Israel of old, have some clear and lively apprehension of the realities of hell ever kept before us in one way or another. I would go so far as to say we ought to have it clear in our minds that we all deserve to go there. It isn't just the man on the street who deserves to go there. It is I Who deserve to go there. The fire that burns. And that no water can quench. That fire which by God's command. May never be put out. No not ever. No not. By the water of the tears. Which they ever cry. They will weep and gnash their teeth forever. But they will never be able to put out those flames. It will ever burn. It will ever consume. Yes. That is where every man ought to be. And the Christian is someone who knows it. And his enormous sense that he, uh, sense of relief that he is set free, that he doesn't have to go there, arises only at the foot of Jesus' cross. Yes, he is set free. He need live uh, no longer in fear of going to hell, but not for anything he has done, only by what Christ has done for him. But I ask you, does not such a thought, the altar of burnt offering, speed you on to the altar of forgiveness, seeking from God forgiveness for your sins, 
for which you would otherwise justly be damned. Will you not, careless sinner, flee from the wrath to come into the arms of a dying Savior who pleads with you? Come to me and I will give you rest. I will not damn you, but I will save you freely and gladly. If only you would but come. Save you from what? Save you from the fires that ever burn. Oh, but if you will not come. Then Jesus asks, how will you escape that fire which no man can quench or put out? What is it that will keep you from going to that place of fiery torment? Can anything you do or say keep you from that fire which ever burns for sin? Will you by your pleas and tears be able, be able to overturn the justice of God and his vengeance upon the sinner in hell? There's nothing that the man can do to deliver himself out of this fate. His sighs, his tears, his repentance, his cries unto God, his prayers. None of these things will deliver him. Only God, by his grace, can deliver him. But that brings me to the second. Uh, this is a sub point of the first point. The second Spiritual truth that we might draw out of the fire that ever burns. And that is on the other side of it. Happily. There was a continual reminder of God's acceptance of the sacrifice. That the sinner need not be consumed. If there be another that is burned in his place. God's willingness to pardon the sinner. To atone for his sin. And to bring peace and reconciliation. The fires which ever burn, therefore, represent the constancy of his delight and of his acceptance and of his willingness to forgive. A faint picture, you might say, of what is said later in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, that Jesus, our high priest, ever lives to make intercession for the saints. And so God ever delights in his intercession and his sacrifice. For as God had an eye to the altar of sacrifice... So his good, good pleasure was ever found there, which he expressed over and over again. It will be, uh, we don't read this here, but we read this earlier on, and certainly it ought to be in our minds. It will be a sweet aroma unto me. I delight in it. I accept it. I receive it. And so I pardon the sinner. And as God looked uh, to that fire which burned, so he ever looks upon Christ's intercession with delight and pleasure and acceptance. Here is something as certain and as constant as the fires of hell. And that is God's delight in the sacrifice of his son. His acceptance, his pardon. He says to he who is pardoned by Christ's sacrifice, I will remember their sins no more. I will put an end to them. Or look at it like this. There's only one thing that can stop the fires of hell from consuming us. And that is the fire of sacrifice which God himself kindles on our behalf. And which he accepts as propitiation for our sins. His wrath poured out on another at Calvary. So is the fire on this altar consumed. Not the sinner but the sacrifice. So we see in Jesus the hope set forth there at the burnt offering realized. The principle of atonement and of substitution. The wrath of God poured out 
Thank God, not on me, but on another. And can we not, who have seen Christ become our burnt offering, appreciate this fact about his work? That he has put out the fire. He has put out the fire for me and for you and for all who call upon him. Yes, it ever burns for others, but not for him and thus not for us. He has put it out. He has extinguished it because he has satisfied its fullness. Do you appreciate this, beloved, about Christ and his cross? How he became there, our burnt offering. How he fulfilled what is represented here as the law of the burnt offering. How it was that an eternity of wrath was poured out on him in those few hours. As he suffered and died at the cross of Calvary. But it's a third spiritual truth that we might draw out of that ever-burning fire very briefly. And this in keeping especially with the nature of the burnt offering. Was the principle of consecration. You think of God here especially speaking to his priests. Consecration, devotion. And in this, uh, the ever-burning fire was a keen reminder That our devotion to God is like a fire that must ever be kept up by us and never be put out. Yes, God set apart the priests. He consecrated them. He began the fire, but let them keep it up. To see the act of consecration as a continual work of God's priests. And so to spiritualize the truth uh, along with the priests, let us ever lay the wood on the altars of our hearts. That the fire of devotion may be kept burning always unto God. Clearly that is the big thing. And I I, I almost preached a sermon just on that idea. But there's other things that we could emphasize. That's just the first point. There's other things we could say about the laws of the offerings. Though I don't have nearly as much to say about these others. Five points. As a second point, there's a clear emphasis on the holiness of the priests and of the priestly service. What was for them a ritual priestly holiness? Not so much a personal holiness, but an official holiness. He was to exhibit the holiness of the Lord, which he carried about him in his garments and through his ordination in carrying out his tasks. A holiness which was seen not only in his priestly garments, but also in his holy fellowship with God, partaking of the same sacrifices. Hence, uh, throughout these laws, the emphasis on the priestly meals. And so the emphasis becomes a portion for the Lord and a portion for the priests. What is burned with fire belongs to God, but what is left over belongs to the priests. Let them eat it, but let them do so in a manner that is holy. In the tabernacle, the holy place itself, verse 16 of chapter 6. And yet we also notice the laws of the burnt offering that his holiness did not preclude him from the meanest and the lowest kind of service. For he was to clean out the ashes of the fire that it may be kept burning. And he was to take those ashes outside uh, the camp, changing his garments into something more common. But even then we see a fitting picture uh, of the great high priest to come. For he was one who was lowly. And he was one who stooped down and who served. Not something that therefore is unbecoming of a holy priest.
priest, but which is becoming. But third, the journey outside the camp. This is another fact that we had not seen before, but which now we see. And how significant this was that the priests who ministered at the altar were commanded to journey outside the camp in a regular fashion. And it was significant for this reason, because it sent these holy men outside the camp, the place of uncleanness, let them take off their priestly garments and put on new garments and spread the ashes there. Let them signify to Israel thereby that the offerings for sin were all burnt up and their sins were no more, though the fire raged on. Here is what became of these sacrifices for sin. They were finished. They were taken outside. They were forgotten. And let us, uh, in, in the same way, find another fitting picture of Jesus, our sacrifice, who was sacrificed not on the altar of burnt offering in Jerusalem, which stood in the days of his sufferings, but outside the camp. That's where you'll find him. That's where you'll found, find his altar. Outside the temple and all that was found there. And yet we realize in light of the laws of the burnt offering that for Jesus to go there as a holy high priest was not so unheard of because here we find these priests doing this very thing before him. Going outside the camp, taking the last remnants of sin there and then leaving them there. And yet here is something remarkable in this journey outside the camp. And I confess I do not fully understand it. I've said that the place outside the camp was a place of uncleanness. I stand by that. But do you notice in the text the place itself is called clean? They're to go to the place that is clean and leave the ashes there. Outside the camp, unclean. Oh, but this place where he was to spread the ashes was clean. It was called clean by the Lord himself. And was it not simply that it became clean by virtue of this, that the priest was there, that it became the final place of sacrifice. And likewise, did Christ not himself consecrate the same place by his own sacrifice and his own cleansing blood? He goes to the place of uncleanness, but he makes it clean. He cleanses it. He cleanses it by his blood and we are able to say with God, the place is clean. It is free of all sin and defilement because Christ's sacrifice there. Hebrews chapter 10 or excuse me, chapter 13, verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Jesus sanctifies this place by himself. And so when we meet him there, we read that he sanctifies us as well. He invites us there as though to remind us not only to meet him there, but that we are called as his people to bear his reproach now in this world as his priests and his people. We cannot look for the glories of Jerusalem when he would have us to meet outside the camp, outside the security and the outward glories of the temple. 
No, these are not fitting pictures of the church in this age. We belong with Jesus outside the camp, in the wilderness, bearing his reproach, looking not for those earthly glories which Israel knew in the temple, but rather those glories of which, or those glories of that city into which he has now entered. But fourth, we might note as well the holiness of what was offered, which is also continually referred to. Again and again, the Lord refers to uh, the, the offerings themselves as holy. It is most holy. Let not the priest forget it. They were to be regarded as such by the priests. They must be handled as holy things and only by holy persons. And to spiritualize that truth as well in reference to new covenant worship. This is how we should regard all of God's ordinances of worship. We must hear this refrain ringing in our ears at all times. It is most holy. This is God's own declaration with regard to his own ordinances which he sets up as vessels and vehicles to display his glory to man. It's his own estimation and valuation of these things. But likewise, and because of this, how we must regard them as well, as most holy. And if not, if we, if we profane his ordinances by vain and careless use, or else by our own unholiness and sin, then we notice that the sentence is excommunication. Excommunication for the one who disregards God's ordinances and profanes his holy worship. Verse 27 of chapter 7. But fifth, we might also notice with the repeated emphasis on the blood in the ministry of the priests that we are thoroughly taught in the principles of atonement. And there's no surprise there because that is really the great theme of the book of Leviticus. Uh, several things conspired to teach this awful lesson. That being that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins ever and again. That is what God was impressing upon the priests and the people. And what we notice as we read all of these verses is the prominence of the blood. The blood was to be shed. It was to be sprinkled with every sacrifice. Incredible. Andrew Bonar in describing this uh, describes the pilgrim in Psalm 84 journeying to the uh, tabernacle or the temple longing to be in the courts of the Lord. And when he got there, what did he find? He found blood everywhere. It would have been shocking and alarming, except for he who was schooled in the principles of religion, finding the very thing he sought, that there was shedding of blood, and thus there was remission and atonement. Who could ever delight in such a scene but the sinner who wished to find cleansing by the blood? Likewise, who among us could ever delight in a bleeding, dying Savior on a cross, pouring out his blood upon that altar? But he who sought remission. Another thing that we see in uh, the, the, uh, the blood and the sin offering in particular was the completeness of this offering. Signifying the central lesson of atonement, which was that sin is to be put uh, to an end. Again and again, God was indicating this to the people in so many ways. And so with regard to the sin offering, God says that it shall not be eaten by the priest. They have no portion in it. For sin must be all burned up with fire. 
As though to say, sin itself must be put to death completely, all burned up, or else the sinner must have his part in the fire. But six, and finally, we have principles with regard to the peace offerings. For one, uh, for one thing, we have this remarkable note that uh, with the peace offering, they were to offer leavened bread. Well, how surprising that is to read. Chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. We would have expected unleavened, but, but perhaps we shouldn't have. Perhaps we should have expected leavened. What this signified was something that was in keeping with the very transaction that occurred with the peace offering. That because there was real peace as signified in the peace offering and as the final transaction in all five of the offerings, that the requirement now of unleavened bread was not present. Andrew Bonar, his sins are all forgiven. There is peace between him and God. There is in the worshiper no uncleanness now. Amazing. But beyond that, There were also various ways to make this offering, whether by thanksgiving or to make a vow or as a voluntary offering. But the sense we get is that the priests were always to be offering and always to be worshiping God. Always acknowledging with thankful hearts that God had reconciled them to himself. And now that became to them a wellspring either of thanksgiving or vows. Or perhaps just spontaneous praise. And that is what we're called to as well. Again, as priests of a new covenant who daily minister at an altar, which they had no right. If you go on with the verses that I read, meeting Jesus outside the camp, bearing his reproach, looking for the glories of the city to come. What are we to do at that altar? Well, we're to offer our peace offerings of thanksgiving and praise and obedience. Therefore, by him, this is Hebrews 13, 15. Let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Here is a life, beloved, which is well pleasing to God and which is prefigured. By the Old Testament priests, a life of thanksgiving, a life of obedience, a life lived to God in thankful acknowledgement of his mercies found at the altar of grace, a life of spontaneous and constant praise. And I ask you in closing, beloved, do you have such a view of the Christian life as one who has been saved from the fire, as one who has been set apart? For sacred use and who has been called by God holy. Does your view of the Christian life resemble these laws of the priesthood? And have you found anything in Leviticus yet for your soul? I hope that you have. Do you find in Leviticus here, as the author to the Hebrews does, a fitting picture of what worship is really like in the presence of God? And do you find Christ himself standing at the center of it? And how jealously God guards his worship, which is the best vehicle he finds for expressing his holiness to his people and to this world. This will continue to be the theme of Leviticus. And oh, that we might all take it to heart and show, along with 
uh, what the priests of old were called to, namely a zeal for God's worship and his ordinances, to regard them as holy. And to see how such worship worship is only made possible once the blood has been shed on our behalf and we have found our mission. Go and read Hebrews chapter 10 and you will find those who have found forgiveness at the blood of the altar of the cross. Bid on to the altar of grace and to the place of worship. Try to take in the total picture of what is represented here. Atonement. Leading on to worship. Christ our sacrifice has opened the new and living way. Now to draw near to God in worship. By his bleeding wounds. What a picture. And what a privilege it is to worship him now. Amen. And let us uh, return now uh, our praise to God. By standing and singing hymn number 453. And as the closing hymn of the month. We will sing it a cappella though. As, as a help in setting the pace. Of the singing, uh, we will have the piano accompany the singing of the first verse. 453, please stand together and sing.